Well, let's pray as we begin our first Sunday here in a new facility. Heavenly Father, thank you for the excitement of having a new place to meet. But Lord, we, we uh, want to continue keep, to keep ourselves reminded that what we really have that's valuable is your word, the gospel, and, and the fellowship we have with one another and with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And may that always be foremost in our hearts and minds. And may we be true to your calling upon us and faithful to the gospel. And Lord, as we open your word, give us wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. You notice it's pretty easy to hear in here too, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a nice room that way. Much easier than the situation we had in our old one. We still have a mic, so it's possible to have discussion. We'll do the best we can. It's not like in the round where we were, but uh, Robert is in charge of the mic. And we'll discuss the Bible like we always do. Now, we were uh, just finishing verse 21, but let me discuss 21 and 22 here because there's four um, participles that describe what it's like for us as Christians. It says in 2 Corinthians 1.21, Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God and who sealed us and gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So the four participles establishes, and we talked about that last week, anointed, we began talking about that last week, sealed, and then gave us the Spirit. So those are the four things that God did, and these are true of all Christians. This is not just for some elite group of Christians or some special ones, but it's true for all Christians. All Christians are established and we, last week I told you that had a legal connotation of, of um, confirming the validity of in a legal sense. Then anointed, uh, again, true of all. Now, let's turn, by the way, I have my big Bible. And I can keep it here. <laughs> so I always have a big Bible. Uh, let's all turn together to 1 John 2, 20-27, and I'll read that. It's important to realize that all true Christians are anointed by the Holy Spirit. And this passage in 1 John 2 is a warning because there are people who claim some special anointing, and they're claiming that not only do they have a special anointing, they have a special anointing that gives them insights and truths or special revelations that ordinary Christians don't have, and because they claim this, then you have to go to them to get the truth, because nobody else has it. Now, this passage refutes that idea and uh, by saying that that's just not the way it is. So we're in First John. Hi, Troy. Hi. <laughs> There's the engaged people. <laughs> 1 John 2, 20-27. Here's what it says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and who, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. 
And this is the promise which He Himself made to us eternal life. Now notice verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So we know we have a polemical. One more verse, and then uh, Robert, I'll need your help. And as for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. So all Christians have the, uh, are anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and all Christians have access to the same truth. In other words, there's not some special secret information or knowledge that only certain special anointing ones can get, and then you have to go to them to get it. Robert, could you bring Keith to the mic? So, uh, this, all the passages in the New Testament, that, and we've looked at them, the one in Corinthians 1, and the one in um, 1, John 4, uh, 1 John 2, say the same thing. That's that all Christians have the same anointing. Yes. Hello. There you go. But it's so much of a scam when you read a lot of the the uh, ads for uh, power encounters and revivalists and uh, things that happen that I have an anointing for healing or I have a special anointing above you to do something. Uh, it's just not true. It's a scam to begin with. And if we chase special anointings or chase people with special anointings or chasing something that that's fictional and delusional, it's just not... It's not something that we're supposed to do because only Jesus was anointed above his brethren. Absolutely. That's what it says in Hebrews. Only Jesus is the anointed one. The uniquely anointed one is Jesus Christ. The, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which has the, which, and ha Christos means the anointed one. Alright? So Jesus is the anointed one, that is the Messiah. All Christians are anointed in the same sense that we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and there is no special anointed one but Christ. So every time you see a poster for a meeting where it says, here is somebody with a special anointing, and you need to go hear them, as Keith said, you know up front is false advertising. All right? And it says here, that the first John 2 is so clear, I don't know how they ignore it. It says, I've written to, the, to, to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. How are they trying to deceive you? By claiming to be specially anointed. Well, what, what are they called, though, these ones who claim to be specially anointed? What are they called here? Antichrist. Antichrist. Now, why does it say Antichristos? Christos means the anointed one. Antichristos means substituted anointed ones. So the people who claim special anointing above their brethren and claim special information that they've gotten by revelation from that special anointing that you have to go to them to get, the Bible calls them antichrists. Now, I've had... I, back in the 80s, I said this. I, I saw this in the 80s, and I told some of these guys that's what this was all about. Boy, they get mad. They don't like being called antichrist. But see, I was, I was taking away their special... I didn't make it up. It's in First John. I was taking away their special status. If they're just like everybody else, and all they know is what's been revealed in Scripture, then these guys are at a disadvantage because they hardly even know the Bible. Because what they know is their special anointing. Yes. Is there any record in the New Testament of somebody that has a healing ministry 
in and of itself. I mean, we see people being healed, but other than Christ, is there someone with a healing ministry that has the anointing and the gift of healing that that's what they do? God sends them some special power. Uh, the only evidence for that would be at First Corinthians 12, where it talks about gifts that are different. And I mentioned gifts of healings. But if you read Acts, your healings were done by God as a sign of the veracity of the gospel. And I don't know that there was any person who was just a healer, and that's all he was. You don't hear of anybody going from city to city healing people like you'd have... Uh, the healing uh, revival? Yeah, yeah, healing revival, yeah. going to Corinth and stopping in Rome yeah. and taking care of them. or It's just something that's non-existent. No, you don't see it in the New Testament. It kind of, uh, I think it was invented in 1940-something. Uh, there was a, a Earl Roberts and William Branham and, and people like that. There was a, In the 40s, there was this big push for healing evangelists, and that became a unique ministry. But, and again, then you start getting this talk about special anointings. When the uh, scripture talks about the apostles and the special things that were given to the original apostles, how does that fit into the word anointing? Because they had many signs that would follow the apostles. And though that original group of 12 was much different in my first observation than, than the rest of the, uh, the rest of the church. Is well, they there had, a difference there? Yeah, they had special status because they'd seen the risen Lord and they were the apostles. But it doesn't call them, it doesn't claim they have some special anointing. The apostles had a calling that was objective, that Jesus in the flesh called them to be apostles. But even then, he didn't put them, they didn't have a special status before God to be an apostle. They were still just Christians. God was, it was Jesus' church, not the apostles' church, to run as they pleased. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. So, Back to our passage, 2 Corinthians one twenty one. He established us in Christ and anointed us. Now here, us would be all true Christians, not some unique, uniquely privileged ones who are above everybody else. Um, over to Mike Colagelli. You're going to get a workout here in our new setup. <laughs> over here. <laughs> so we're anointed by God and... This is true of all Christians, and therefore, according to 1 John, we shouldn't allow anybody to deceive us by claiming they have some special anointing that we don't. Therefore, we're substandard Christians, or we have to go to their meeting to get what they have because we can't get it somewhere else. That's just always a false claim every time. Mike. Um, I just wanted to ask you uh, uh, this word anointing. I think I've, I've read something where the word chosen uh, is similar or has a similar meaning. And I, I'm not sure if there's uh, you know, a greater connotation or scope of meaning in anointing. It just, it's not a, a typical English word that we use. Okay. And so I'm wondering if we're reading you know, uh, something into it as to uh, if someone's anointed, they have a higher status or, you know, special calling or, or something like that. And, and so I'm just wondering on the more of the okay, definition. Okay, uh, well, the thing that would be similar is being chosen and being anointed are also true of all Christians. The, the words in the Greek are different. The, re, the, the word anointing in the Greek actually gets its meaning from the Old Testament Hebrew, 
And, and the reason there's a change from the old to the new is the, the difference under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, the anointed ones were always someone special. Okay? Like when they, they, when they anointed somebody, they literally did it. They'd take a, a vial of oil and pour it over their head. Okay, it wasn't like a little, like we do with a little dab here. <laughs> you know, um, we used to sing a song that was based on a psalm. What was that one about the head of Aaron, the anointing on the head of Aaron to flow down his beard to, to the skirts of his garment? So Aaron the priest is anointed. I mean, and so when, uh, for instance, Samuel went to anoint a king for Israel, he went to the household of Jesse, and he ended up with all these sons, and they weren't the right one. They found David the shepherd. So David was anointed a priest or prophet, may at times be called anointed, a king might be anointed, but it wasn't for everybody. So what happens is under the new covenant, um, that is basically begins on, as it begins on the day of Pentecost, when, when uh, Peter announces that the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled and that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and even on the old men and the sons and daughters and whoever they may be, and then you go into the idea in Peter where we're a royal priesthood. And um, where is that? 1 Peter 2? So what changes is that what was true for just a few under the Old Covenant now becomes true for the entire people of God. And so therefore, the entire people have special status. That is, they are the redeemed and they are... Um, Okay, two nine, one Peter two nine. Well, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of Him who called you out of darkness. There's that idea of calling or election uh, into His marvelous light. So uh, He made us into a kingdom of priests. So ever uh, priests and kings are anointed. We are anointed, but no particular Christian has status is greater than other Christians. And that's a good... That, you know, that, I think that's... How many times in church history has that been forgotten? And how much damage has been done when we started having uh, popes and bishops and cardinals and prelates and uh, people that claim some sort of privileged status and the ordinary Christians are just there to serve the purposes of these elite ones... That's just not a biblical idea. The priesthood of every believer is absolutely necessary doctrine. Yeah, that wireless is making uh, extraneous sounds, so Jesse's back in there controlling it when we're not using it. Okay. I think we get we need to try different technology. Go ahead. So, if you look at James 5, the we people that are anointed with oil there, the sick. So it's the inverse of having the priest and the high priest, because there you have the anointed being the sick ones. So the, the yeah the sick ones are anointed. Although of course it's a little different meaning. That literally, but yeah. All right, back over here. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get let's get to the next verse. All right, let's go to the next verse. I want to because uh, there's a series of words here uh, that are used. Uh, who sealed us? Then okay, is it established us? Talk about that last week. Anointed. We talked about that. Now it says sealed. And there's another important idea that's true for all Christians. Who sealed us and gave us the Spirit. Now, sealed was a a, a common word used in the ancient world. And it had a range of meanings, but um, including indicating authenticity, including 
um, guaranteeing that there's been no tampering, that something's genuine, the seal hasn't been broken, or also guaranteeing protection. So all these kind of nuances are attached to this word sealed. Now, here it says, who sealed us and gave us the Spirit. And Gordon Fee says this, the Spirit is the seal of God's ownership and therefore the guarantee of the believer's final inheritance. So every believer has the seal of God uh, and that is uh, a sign that you are the Lord's. And like a king in the old, uh, I mean in the ancient days, if a king had something that he was shipping or that something valuable and put his seal on it, the, the idea was that you didn't mess with it because the king had an army to come after you if you, if, if you did. And that seal would also guarantee that when, uh, that this really is the genuine article, it belongs to the king, and his power protects it. So to be sealed by God means that you are the Lord's. Okay, he bought you with a price, the blood of Jesus. That he has put his seal, meaning all of the power of God and his heavenly hosts that are at his disposal are guaranteeing your safety and your protection as you go through this life. So it's really a, a very be- beautiful term. Now, Ryan, you mentioned this, I think, in Ephesians. We went through the idea of being uh, sealed. is also found in the book of Ephesians. Now, well, let's see how we can do this here. i got some cross-references. I don't know if our mic is going to go wacky on us or not. Um, let's just start right here. Um, artists, if you could look up Romans 8 and 9. And Lois, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. And Doris, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And Linda, Ephesians 4, 30. And Denise, Revelation 7, 3. I'll give you two in Revelation. Do Revelation 7, 3 and then after that, 9, 4. I think those ones in Revelation are very interesting. <laughs> okay, Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So that passage is telling, it says he sealed us and gave us the Spirit, that it's an either-or thing. Either you have the Holy Spirit, which means you are Christ's, right? You belong to Christ. All of Christ's children have been given the Holy Spirit. If you do not, you're not His. It's an either-or. So, again, we don't have an elitist category. And I'm dead set against all versions of spiritual elitism in the church. You know, it's, a, it's an abuse of the people of God when certain people claim some grand status and uh, deny you that status and say you needed them because they have this status. That's not what the New Testament teaches. And um, there's no elitism here. And, and all of us are one in Christ. We have the same privileges, the same inheritance, the same status in God's eyes because our status isn't based on something in us. It's based on what God's done for us in Christ. And it's not based on how uh, intelligent we are. It's not based on how many people we can get to follow us. It's not based on any human attributes that we may have. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
And so that's the unity of the church in God's eyes. Okay, the next one is 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Okay, it talks about the earnest of the Spirit, or the, or the, it's kind of like a down payment to guarantee that the whole inheritance will be coming. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom ye also trust that after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Yeah, so there's a lot of very interesting terms, and Ryan preached on that here a while back, but there's this earnest, the idea of the earnest, that the whole inheritance is coming, the Holy Spirit is the earnest, and then the idea of being sealed, and having the mark of God's ownership, and also evidence that we have the right of inheritance, that we're going to inherit all that is provided for us in Christ ultimately in eternity. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, so there it talks about that grieving the Spirit by whom we're sealed for the day of redemption. So we're, we have the seal of God on us so that uh, He has guaranteed our, the redemption of our body. He's talking about ultimately the resurrection. But none of us should presume on that and live in a way that would grieve God. In other words, the assurance of our salvation and the, the perseverance of the saints in these doctrines. Now, I've had people write me who are very angry that I teach the perseverance of the saints because their claim is that if people uh, don't think they're going to lose their salvation, they're never really going to serve God. But we've got to go with what the Bible says, not some pragmatic argument about what it takes to get people to serve God. Frankly, I don't see how that works because the Roman Catholics have never had assurance and never been promised any kind of security or, or anything else, and it doesn't make them serve God better. I mean, it might make them serve the church, give money and jump through hoops, but it doesn't actually make people... Taking away people's assurance doesn't make them better Christians. Dan, can you say amen to that? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't actually work that way. Um, where's the mic go? Oh, okay, go ahead. Ryan has something to say. You and I had a, a common professor, and I know he, um, Dr. Versifu, since gone to be with the Lord, but he had a really good thing to say about this. I was in class, and we were going through Philippians, and the issue of security of salvation came up. Someone asked about it. <laughs> And so he goes, well, you've asked a very involved question, is whether we can lose your salvation. And here's how I answer that. Yeah, you can. But you know what? God won't let you. <laughs> you can, but God won't let you. If it was up to us. Yeah. If, it was in our, if, if our continuance was dependent on our work, our faithfulness, what have you, then, yeah, we could. But the thing that keeps us isn't our abilities. It's the... Preserving power of God. Yeah, that's a very good answer. And so it's not true that if we believe in the assurance of salvation, we therefore believe in our own power, our own ability. No, we believe in a glorious God who will keep us. Now, another thing to keep in mind, though, God will do whatever it takes to make us holy, including uh, killing us if necessary. <laughs> uh, isn't it say that? Doesn't it say that in the First Corinthians? 
um, turn somebody over for the destruction of the flesh. So uh, I wouldn't get real excited about going out and sinning because you've heard about the security of salvation. In fact, as a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Uh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of promise who has sealed you. Yes, Dan. Jude says, uh, <clears throat> Jude says that he will keep you from stumbling. There's a difference between stumbling and falling. When you're in God's family, you may stumble many times, but God will keep you from stumbling. According to the anointed one, they like it, Jehovah's Witnesses. Ruth and Russell, anointed, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, anointed. 35 years ago, I was talking to the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, newly born again, and they said, are you anointed? I said, I don't know anything about anointing, but this I know. I will tell you the gospel that you will die and, and go to hell if you don't put your trust in Christ. This is what I'm called to do. And when you think of it over later on, like you say, the anointing, I think we're called to be priests. Well, priests have a job to do. If you see them in the Old Covenant, they're doing something as unto the Lord. We're called priests to give the gospel. And we're saints. We don't have to work real hard like in a Catholic church hoping you got three, four, five miracles and the Pope may make you a saint. You're an automatic saint. <laughs> boast about the Lord. You can boast that you're a saint. You can boast that you're a priest. You can boast that you can give the gospel. What more can you ask for? Not much. Amen, Dan. <laughs> okay, now uh, Revelation. There's a couple passages, 7, 3, and 9, 4. Revelation 7.3, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, so there was going to be this massive outpouring of uh, judgment, and the sealed ones, it couldn't happen until God sealed his own people. All right? Four, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or, the, or anything green. Or any tree, or but only the, those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. All right, so the judgment came only on in Revelation during the tribulation. There's a sealing of the of the God's people that protects them from the wrath that comes comes. All right, so the sealing the seal of God is uh, evidence that we are the Lord's and that we're protected from His wrath. His wrath will not be poured out. On the sealed ones. Okay? Now, then it says, It gave us the Spirit, we talked about that, in our hearts as a pledge. Now, the word pledge is arabona in the Greek, and a good translation probably would be deposit. I did some study on this yesterday, and it's, uh, it would be a deposit. Uh, and I'm just going to quote this Martin on page 12. Let me find that here. Oh, I had a long quote here. All right. Here's an explanation of that. The second metaphor, the deposit, are a bone of the Spirit, comes from the world of legal documents and may also be rendered first installment. It was a down payment that created obligations and guaranteed that more would be forthcoming. Kerr notes that the word was used in contracts for the hire of services and in contracts of sale and argues that the contract for service is the best for, source for the metaphor. In such a contract, the person who gives the arabon is engaging another to do work. The person who receives the arabon obligates himself to do the work. 
The arabon is a portion of the payment the worker will receive in full when he fulfills the task. In this context of Paul's argument, he is saying that both he and the Corinthians have received the same spirit from God as a first installment that guarantees their common destiny uh, with God. But the spirit who guarantees their common destiny also guarantees his integrity, having anointed us, that is, having sealed us by giving us the spirit as an down payment on our secure future. God continues to confirm him with them. The spirit, not human oaths, therefore verifies Paul's integrity. And compared with the testimony of God's spirit, human oaths are hollow and worthless. If the Corinthians doubt his integrity, they should also, then they also cast doubt on the Spirit's work in their own life. So remember, there was a conflict between Paul and some of the Corinthians, and they were doubting his integrity. And so Paul, in his defense, said, I, the, we, Paul and the Corinthians, received the same seal, the same anointing, the same pledge, therefore they're one. And they cannot just push Paul out of their circle as not good enough for them. And we should always keep in mind, by the way, that when you see signs of regeneration in someone, that uh, and we've talked about that before, there are various signs that would indicate somebody's truly converted. And when you see those signs, then that person we have to grant has the same status as we do. All right? And sometimes people that God converts might annoy us. Now, don't look at me like that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that because people come with their own idiosyncrasies and, and, and problems and issues as newborn Christian. But if there's signs that they're the Lord's, then we need to show patience with them. And we need to care about them and nurture them because if God has given them the Spirit, then these Christians will grow. If we, if we feed the Lord's sheep the pure Word of God, they will grow because by nature that's how God grows them. And so I, I've thought about that sometimes when someone comes to the fellowship who's somewhat troubled or seems to need more attention that we, we can't just gravitate to the people that seem to have something to offer to us. But we have to care for that weaker member, if that's what they seem to be, because God doesn't want us to neglect anyone that he has established, anointed, sealed, given the Holy Spirit, because all of us together will have the same inheritance at the end. And there will be one body. So, by the way, I do believe in the unity of the body and the unity of the faith. And, in fact, that's why we teach the Word of God. And that's why we correct error. Because every error that ever comes into Christendom is an attack against true Christian unity. Because our unity is in the truth of the gospel. And anything that attacks the gospel attacks Christian unity. And it's not disunifying to rebuke error. It's, it's actually just the opposite of what a lot of people think. Now, verse 23 here, and we've got about ten more minutes. <clears throat> but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Now, some of you weren't here in our earlier classes when we, we went through these First uh, Corinthians 1. But what was happening was this, for those of you who are new. Um, they accused Paul of vacillating because... He had earlier, and we kind of reconstructed the history by 
quoting passages from Acts and 1 Corinthians and, and, and 2 Corinthians and patched together the history of this relationship, Paul had intended to come and told them that he would. And he wrote this other letter called a sorrowful letter that we, that's no longer extant. It's not in our Bible. And when he didn't come, he changed his mind. They accused him of vacillating. Well, what kind of apostle are you? You can't get your act together. You can't decide what you're going to do. And so they use that as further accusation against him. Now Paul is actually at this point going to say why he didn't come. And it turns out the reason he didn't come was because he was afraid that if he came there and had to deal with them as sternly as he would have had to, had there been no repentance, that it would have damaged the relationship for good and it would have done more harm than good. So now he is saying that he didn't come in order to spare them. And uh, he thought not coming and giving them a chance to respond to his letter and other uh, uh, things that have been said to them would be better than going there while they're still in their problem. So here, this is what it says. I call God a witness that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Now, in other words, Paul decided that personal confrontation at that time would not bring the reconciliation that he was hoping for. So he made a decision not to go at that time. Now, Paul is calling God as his witness because Paul's reason why he went or didn't, I mean, why he didn't go, which was something in his heart and mind, is known only to Paul and to God. And they have the, you know, the, Jew, the Jewish thing that you find in the Old Covenant and is re, repeated in the New is that every fact will be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, there are no other witnesses that Paul could call upon uh, because only God and he knew why he made his decision the way he did and could confirm what was going on in his heart. So he calls God as the witness. So Paul's conscience is a witness in verse 12. Where, where was, verse 12 says, um, <clears throat> For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and toward you. So his conscience bears witness that he treated them correctly and that he had best motives in mind when, in his dealings with the Corinthians. And now he calls God as the witness. But that's all he has, his own conscience and God. Now, when he says witness to my soul, in the Greek, the, the prefix or the uh, preposition is epi, upon my soul. And frankly, Paul is saying that uh, he, uh, if he's lying, he's going to pay for his lie when God brings judgment to him. So he's making a very strong statement here. It's kind of rare. He's done this a couple other times. But he makes a very strong statement that he calls God as a witness that to spare you, I did not come to Corinth. Um, I'm going to turn and read uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 19-21. It might give us a little background to this statement. 1 Corinthians 4, 19-21. But I will come to you soon. Now remember, this is what he didn't do that they're upset about. Now, I, I, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So he did put a caveat in there. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? 
So he did have a real concern that if he went there in this with these false apostles, super apostles challenging him, there was going to be a very uh, how would you say it uh, cantankerous situation, a very difficult situation. Notice he said, "If the Lord wills." Much like what it says in James that we ought to say, we don't know the future, do we? If the Lord wills. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And sometimes things work out very well, and sometimes we have grand plans and they don't go so good. Isn't that true? (laughs) And not everybody that starts a business ends up getting rich. Not everybody that plans... uh, to do certain things is able to carry through. So we should always be circumspect and say, if the Lord wills. I was thinking about the fact that this building came together so we could meet here. I never would have thought that was possible. If you would have seen this two weeks ago, I just didn't, I didn't know what we were going to be meeting in. We could have been meeting in a pile of rubble because it wasn't that long ago we had one. But you never want to claim you know things about the future. And this came together better than anybody could have expected. It's just everything showed up except for the carpet, and there's a reason for that, I believe, because we still have to paint. And uh, so it'll give us uh, a chance to paint without damaging new carpet. The chairs showed up. The carpenters got their work done. The, the carpet's on the stage. The stage's constructed. The sound is working. The video's working. The lights are working. But I can only say that after the fact. <laughs> Last week, I couldn't have told you that because I don't want to presume. So it's not a bad thing to say, if the Lord wills. Now, some people will tell you that if you say, if the Lord wills, that means you don't have any faith. Because they believe you can tell God what he has to do. Yeah, oh, oh, is right. That's that's very bad. (laughs) Okay, um, so God is a witness to his soul. Paul's conscience is a witness, and he has pure motives, and his motive was that he might not... Um, do something that might sour them against him. Now, there's something more going on here, I believe, than just Paul's reputation or his desire to have the Corinthians as his friends. Because there's a gospel issue at the heart of this conflict. The people that were attacking Paul had a different message. They were claiming special revelations and visions. We'll see that later in 2 Corinthians. They were claiming special privileged status. So if, if the Corinthian church turns against Paul, they're likely to turn to these false apostles. And so what was at stake there was the gospel itself, not just Paul's reputation. So he's willing to, as he says later, to become as if he were foolish to defend himself because what was at stake was the gospel. And so it was worth it to Paul to do, go through everything he did uh, for the sake of the gospel in Corinth and the integrity of their faith, that it might not be distorted by these false teachers. So that's what's going on here. Now, let's, we got about two minutes. Let's introduce the next verse. We can fully explicate it next week. Verse 24, Not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So here, Paul again um, eschews. That's the right word, I think. Eschews. What does that mean, Dick? <laughs> that means uh, stays away from. 
Remember it said in the King James that Job is chewed evil? <laughs> and so, uh, he doesn't want any kind of a hierarchy, status consciousness, lording over, lording over somebody's faith, making people dependent on man rather than God. That sort of thing it really should not have a place in the church. Boy, this last week, Oh, we'll we'll talk about this verse next week, but so I got to quit here in one or two minutes. But boy, this week I, I heard more horror stories from around the country, phone calls from people who have been to- terribly abused by false shepherds, uh, pastors fallen into immorality, and then not not uh, wanting to uh, undergo any kind of church discipline. And I, I got a call from one guy who said that. This pastor admitted that he had hired his prostitute. And then when it was found out, he just said, well, uh, God's gracious, so I'm just going to keep being the pastor and keep preaching. And, and that's it. And, and so the guy said there was this big battle over this. And then they finally, there was some state law they brought in to try to get rid of him, to get him to step down. And so he just took 500 people and went over and started over somewhere else. And, and, and this was the same guy that brought in all the seeker sensitive stuff. So I keep hearing these stories, and I don't know. Somehow, in evangelicalism in America, we've lost our, our way as far as what's important. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit in a sermon in Thessalonians about how badly we all need prayer. And if one, if there's anything that will really damage a church, it's this whole status consciousness thing. This idea that some people have some special status and that everybody else exists to feed them whatever it is they're gaining, you know, whether it's notoriety or money or power or whatever. That sort of thing, Paul is against it, and I think we all have to be. There's no special anointed one. There's nobody to lord it over your faith. And, and a shepherd that God wants to raise up is one that will do one simple thing. Feed my sheep. <laughs> okay? So may God raise up some shepherds around the United States that feed all these sheep that are, don't know where to go. Um, okay, now, as I said, some of you came in late. We, let me tell you two things. We have to go downstairs so the music ministry can get going right away here. And we have to get back up before 10.30 because after 10.30, we're not going to let anybody come up the front. You have to go up the back stairs. You can still come in. After 10.30, you got to come up the back stairs. The reason is because our entrances are at the front, and once the service starts, they'd be distracting. So if you're here before 10.30, you can use the front. Otherwise, just come up the back stairs. No problem. God bless you.